You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. The scripture passage for today is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their hard work. If, if either should fall, one can pick up the other. But how miserable are those who fall and don't have a companion to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they can stay warm. But how can anyone stay warm alone? Also, one can be overpowered, but two together can put up resistance. A three-ply cord doesn't easily snap. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. convinced uh, that there are two types of different in the world. There is good different, and there is bad different. I'll give you an example. If I walk in with a new shirt or a new haircut that my wife does not like, she will say, and I quote, huh, that's different. But if she's talking about something that she likes, so for example, earlier this week we all had Halloween, I made the mistake of suggesting that Haribo gummy bears are the same thing as the Albanese gummy bears, to which I was very quickly reprimanded, no, there's a difference. (laughs) Anybody got a dog in that fight, Team Haribo? Okay, Team Albanese? Team, I will eat anything sugary, sweet goodness, and you've been indulging in all of that in Jesus' name all week. Amen? Amen. Amen. I've been thinking about it a lot, that who we as Christians are supposed to be, keyword supposed to be, is we're supposed to be good different. We're supposed to be the type of people that when you interact with in the world, uh, there's something different about us, there's something unique about us, there's something sort of, uh, just sort of, it's an alternative to how we live, but when you see us, who we're supposed to be is we're supposed to be the type of people that when you see the way we live, it causes you to stop. It causes you to pause. It causes you to go home and to reevaluate and to not... Uh, be guilted or shamed, but almost like captivated by, wow, there might be just a different way to live. This sermon series that we're embarking upon today is talking about just that. How are we supposed to be different, but a good different in the world? A different that's actually attractive to someone, 
instead of repulsed by it. Specifically, we're going to narrow the focus a little bit. Specifically, we're going to hone in our relationships. Our relationships with those of you who are married, your romantic relationships, dating, engaged. Uh, maybe for you, this is going to be applicable to your close, intimate friendships. Maybe for you, it's going to be in your parenting relationships. You'll see some of these principles come out, or maybe with family members. All the while, we're going to ask this question of how are we supposed to be different? How should Christians look different in how we approach and how we show up for one another. And for answers to that, we're going to have to dig a little deeper. Let's dive in. If you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along, today we're going to be camped out in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're watching online, feel free to hit pause and go locate a Bible and uh, jump back to the passage you just heard Sally read a couple moments ago. If you're new to studying the Bible, you're still getting kind of like acquainted or maybe reacquainted with the Bible, Ecclesiastes is what is known as wisdom literature. So every book in the Bible falls into one of these genres, right? Just like music has different genres, literature in Scripture also has genres. So narrative, you might think of that as like the Gospels. They're telling a story. There's characters. There's a plot. There's conflict. Poetry and wisdom literature reads very differently. We're not supposed to read this asking, well, what happened and what's the story? Instead, what we're reading is someone who most likely at the end of his life is sitting down to capture, to chronicle observations, pieces of wisdom, lessons that maybe, just maybe, they learned the hard way, that they want those who go behind them to receive and not also have to learn the hard way, right? And so we see an example of this. In Ecclesiastes, go ahead and read it for yourself. If you go back and read it, it's chock full of all of this wisdom that this author has come to experience. And one of the things that this author observes is this that when it comes to relationships and writ large, he says, man, something else I've noticed under the sun, something that's pointless, another translation, something that I feel like is just a meaningless way to live is people who live completely and utterly alone. No companions. They don't seek friendships. They isolate themselves. We actually saw a report uh, recently by the Surgeon General that said there's an epidemic of loneliness in our world today, and there's serious health ramifications that are occurring to our loneliness and our isolation from one another. And so... Matter of factly, this is why the author observing this also makes the point that he makes in our passage for today. And if you've been to any wedding ever, you have heard this verse, right? That so, the response to that is two are better than one, right? Not only romantically, but friendship-wise and community, it's way better. What does Jesus say? Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them. There's this strong, strong argument that we ought to be in connection, that we are hardwired, we are bound for connection with one another right? Which, by the way, side note, funny story, uh, earlier this year, I officiated a wedding, and we read this very scripture passage uh, when we were doing the unity candle sort of bit, and uh, the bride's veil caught on fire. <laughs> and I didn't make the joke during the ceremony, but afterward, I said, wow, we almost watched two become one in a literal way. Hallelujah. Woo! Thank God that did not happen. But this First, this sort of theme actually, while it's true, ain't different yet. There's nothing unique about this. You can read that Bible passage at a Christian wedding. You can read it at a non-Christian wedding. There's nothing distinct about this. All of us, you don't have to live human life very long to know that loneliness ain't good for us. No, 
There's nothing different here until we get to verse 12. You see, in verse 12, the author has this sort of very mysterious sort of cryptic line where he almost, as like a throwaway line, like it's almost like, I'm just going to say this, and only for the people who have ears to hear, I'm going to let them hear it. He says, yes, two are better than one, but you want to know it's even better than two. The goal for us is three. You see, what makes Christian relationships different is who's involved. What should set apart a Christian relationship from any other relationship out there is that we are consistently seeking God's presence in our relationships. We are consistently putting God's wisdom and God's teachings and God's will in the center of our friendships and our romantic relationships, our marriages. God's at the center of everything that we do. In many ways, it should look like this, that on our best days, Christians are walking around like little mini trinities, many trinities. you got the big trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be many trinities, walking around consistently reminding people, it ain't just me and you. God is here. God is with us. You see, Christians, what should make us different in how we engage in relationships is we should live, and we use this language a lot in church, God-centered relationships, right? Now, before I go any further, I just used a phrase that if you've been in church at any, for any length of time or you have been connected with Christian subculture for any length of time, you know this phrase of God-centered relationships. We use this phrase all the time. It's what's always important whenever you use these phrases that we use all the time to clarify what do we mean by that? Or in this case, what do we not mean by that? Here's what we don't mean by that. I think in Christian churches often, and in Christian subculture often, we confuse God-centered with God-branded. You know the difference? God-branded is I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure everyone knows we are Christians. I'm going to make sure I do everything power to portray an image of myself and of our relationship that everyone knows we are believers. We are real, legitimate believers. We go to church together. We eat at Chick-fil-A together. We decorate our home only in things from Hobby Lobby. They will know we are Christians by our love. No, by our decor and wall art. Sometimes I think we confuse God-centered with God-branded. I'll give you actually a personal example of this. When I was in college, I was a junior, so I was about to graduate, and one of my former soccer uh, teammates had graduated a couple years ahead of me, and right after he graduated, he got married because he went to a Christian college, and that's literally what you do the day after graduation day. And so, um, some of you got that. But he hung around the school because he was like a graduate assistant, so he's still going back to school, but he was also helping with the soccer team. And I'll never forget this. Like, when they first got married, like, we just idolized their relationship. They had all the appearances of the strongest, most beautiful Christian relationship you've ever seen. They talked about their faith all the time. They went to church all the time. They were in church. They would, like, both hold hands and worship with their hands in the sky together. Like, they'd hold them together just so they never were ever apart and doing anything. They were who we always thought we were supposed to be. They were the goal, the dream, 
And then come to find out, right before I graduated, come to find out, he had been distant for a while. We hadn't seen him very often. Come to find out he had been suffering from addiction for the last couple of years, and she was having an affair. I don't have any idea which one caused or the other. Maybe they're separate. I have no idea. Instead of seeking help, instead of seeking support, what they did, and maybe even what they felt like they were forced to do, was hide it behind something we might call performative Christianity. The Apostle Paul talks about this. He doesn't use this phrase. This is our phrase, but he talks about this in 2 Timothy. He says, uh, this is the type of living that we do uh, in church, outside of church, in our relationships or whatever, where you got the form of godliness. So you got real good at some point at playing the game. You learned the language to speak. You learned the images to portray. You knew exactly how to make sure everyone knew, or at least they thought they knew, who you were. But the substance of what we talk about, the power of what we talk about, was never really accessed. And friends, I need you to hear me for a quick second. This type of performative Christianity not only turns other people away from faith, that's not only when it looks bad different, but I'm not exaggerating this. This has also almost cost people their lives. And furthermore, God has no place in a God-branded relationship. Because it's actually not God they're after. It's appearances they're after. It's impressions they're after. It's a per certain persona they're after. God can't be in a God-branded relationship, but only in a God-centered one. So that evokes a natural next question. So, okay, so what the heck is it? Like, again, like I've heard Christian Bible stories talk about this. I you know, hear Caleb talk all about it. I hear churches talk all about it, of having like a God-centered, a God-grounded, founded sort of relationship. What does it look like? And this is where I think we have to return to the Gospels. You see, Jesus, I think, has this really beautiful way of when things got really complicated, when the teachings that he was sort of putting out there, when they got complicated, he would give people a compass, a north star, a place to sort of ground them again. He'd say, when you get lost, when you're trying to figure this thing out, when you're trying to figure out what kind of life I'm expecting and hoping and desiring from you, go back to this, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so today, what I want to do is I want to unpack these a little bit. And I want to ask a question of, great, that's wonderful, awesome, but what does it look like? So if this is the sort of the compass, the north star that Jesus gives to us, that we are supposed to, this is the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with our hearts and mind and strength, and we are to do this in every sphere of our lives, what does it look like in relationships? It looks like this. With all your heart means you are someone who is consistently asking yourself this question. When I show up in my relationships, is my heart open or is it closed? When I show up in my relationships, and like real talk, real answers, am I willing to risk love? Am I willing to risk being loved by another human being 
who has flaws, who could totally let me down, they could totally bail, they could, but am I willing to show up? Is God able to change you? Is God changing you through the people in your life? One of the things I love about the Roman Catholic Church is they teach that one of the seven sacraments is marriage, and the reason for which is because they wisely understand that if you let it, the person who will be the most, single most responsible for your transformation as a human being, good or bad, are the people who are nearest to you. They are the people who are closest to you. They will either bring you closer to who God wants you to be or because of their presence and because of some concoction of your own stuff, they will harden you and turn you into someone that you don't want to be. In my own marriage, uh, Marie and I learned this five years in. Five years in, uh, we learned that, well, we knew this about each other, that both of us coming into the relationship uh, were victims of someone else's infidelity. So we both came into the relationship having been cheated on. And so when you come into a relationship with that background, what happens is, is you come in with a little bit of a guard up. You come up with a little bit of protective tendencies. You come in and you're like, you're in, but you're like not all the way in, you know what I'm talking about? And we learned about five years in that our mechanisms, our coping mechanisms for that were no longer working because our coping mechanisms at that point were either A, just try to control the hell out of the other person so they do and be all the things you need them to be and they never do anything that would cause you to feel abandoned. That wasn't working. And her other coping mechanism was, well, if ever she gets too close, like if ever I feel myself getting like too vulnerable or like the risk is beginning a little bit greater and greater, I'll just wall off. I won't let her in any further. And I'll never forget about five years in, just feeling like God was impressing upon me that the means that God had, the means that God wanted to use to deliver me from that thing that I was so desperately afraid of, this fear of being abandoned and taken advantage of, it just felt impressed upon me, God saying, yeah, the only way I can set you free from that is actually, kind of, it feels counterintuitive. You gotta risk the thing that you're so terrified of. You gotta show up with your whole heart. The other thing that I think constitutes, the other things that I think constitute a Christian relationship, that a God-centered relationship is not only showing up with your whole heart, but your soul, your soul. So what does that look like? It means asking these questions. In your relationships, maybe again, this for you, this is your marriage or this is a close friendship of yours. Do you pray for that relationship? How often do you pray for it? Do you pray with one another? Do you pray, do you ask the other person what you ought to be praying for? Do you seek God's will for their life? Do you seek God's direction for their life? Do you remind them of God's will and plans and direction of their life when they are tempted to forget? Again, these principles don't just apply to romantic relationships, they apply to close friendships. About six or seven months ago, I called my best friend in the whole world, David. And I called him because it was right at the sort of cusp of when we were thinking about launching a third worship service as a church. 
And so I called him because I just needed someone to process with. He's in ministry as well, and so I'm just like laying out for him. I'm like, well, we could do it, or we should, maybe we shouldn't do it. And like, here's a bunch of reasons why we should do it, and here's a bunch of reasons why we maybe shouldn't do it right now. The timing's not right. So I laid out all these reasons, my reasons, my picture of the whole scene. And he listened to those things, and he didn't, do, he didn't invalidate any of them. He said, so one more thing I just want to sort of factor into the mix. I just want to throw onto the table real quick. So like, is this something you feel like God's called you to do? And it was, it was, I mean, several months ago, we as leadership team, as best as we could discern, and we don't get it perfectly all the time, but as best as we could discern, this felt faithful. And in an instant, God used David's very simple question to remind me, not to say all those things didn't matter, but it was a reminder that if this was God, if this is what God was calling us to do, the rest takes care of itself. Do you ask these questions in your relationships? Do you pray for these things in your relationships? Thirdly, another thing that I think uh, sort of signals or distinguishes uh, Christian relationships from other relationships in the world is not only showing up with your heart, with all of your soul, but with all your mind. Do you ask yourself these questions together? Are we growing together? Are we studying together? Are we deepening our understanding of one another and of God together? Are we putting ourselves in places that cultivate spiritual growth? This is one of the reasons why I, it's so hard having conversations about church attendance because it feels like sometimes people feel like it's all about roster stuff and like, oh, did I check a box of being here or not? No, but in so much of Christian discipleship, Christian growth, it's, this, it's the old saying, 90% is just showing up. God seems to cook up the rest when you get there. It's important. It is important as a relationship that you are engaged in your mind, intellectually, and you're growing together. And here's why. I read a stat earlier this week that was really startling to me. It found that there's actually a new trend emerging in American relationships. It found this. It found that the, the, the number of 50-plus-year-olds who are getting divorced, separated, or who are now into their second marriage is growing significantly from where it used to be. If you look at this chart, uh, in the 1960s and 1980s, those are the two blue lines, that shows the average age uh, when those persons were getting divorced, getting separated. And that number is now moving to where now 50, 55, 60, 65-year-olds are now getting divorced. They're quitting and they're moving on to something else. And I'm not saying that all of this can be consolidated to one singular answer. But I will say this. The sociologists who conducted this study found that there were three common themes as to why this trend of 50-plus-year-olds are getting divorced more now than ever. Those three trends and themes were these. They don't know how to communicate anymore. They have unresolved issues that they never truly fully worked out. And the third one was a lack of mutual growth. Maybe it was emotional growth. Maybe it was intellectual growth. And here in the church, it's the question of spiritual growth. I'm going to throw you a softball. You ready? You can just crush it out of the park. This is an easy one. Ready? If you don't grow together, what happens? You grow yeah. 
You don't grow together. You grow apart. You wake up one day and you, act, you not only don't recognize the other person that you're with or you're friends with, you're married to, but when you look at one another, you see people actually chasing wildly different pathways for their life. And fourthly and finally, I think the marker, the signifier of a truly Christian relationship, one that's different than what you see uh, around in the world, is not only to be someone to be in a relationship whereby you love with all of your heart, soul, and mind, but your strength. When you are in these relationships, do you uh, expect to serve or to be served? So in your friendships, are you the someone who uh, you never pursue or initiate hangouts or check on the other person when they're going through a rough time? Do you just sort of wait and get chased all the time? In your marriage and in your dating relationships, when you show up, do you expect the other person to do 90% of their relational work and you just sort of chip in a little 10? Furthermore, outside of your relationship, does your relationship benefit anyone else? Or is your relationship... Are you two the only benefactors to that relationship? Or if you're married and you have kids, are the only benefactors of your relationship each other and your children or your grandchildren? Or are more people really glad you're around? Is this world that looks upon us and looks upon your home and looks upon your marriage, does it see something that, dang, if they weren't here, we'd miss them, we need them. They are a gift of goodness in the world. Later this week, we are taking eight of our folks, eight of our folks back to the Dominican Republic. It's our second time there. We just started a new international mission with a community in La Vega. And we're working with the local leaders there to combat this community that's struggling in extreme poverty. And when we first sort of opened up signups, one of the things that was most inspiring to me was two of the people who signed up are David and Kelly Jones, Aren't they cute? Look at them. Mm -hmm. I've grown to know David and Kelly uh, pretty well over the last couple of years. And I think why their signing up struck me so much is because they're not only bucking the trend of these 50-plus-year-old folks who are considering, eh, we're just going to bail and quit and you know, find someone else. They're not only staying committed to one another and growing with one another, but they want to serve together. God, what a powerful witness. What a powerful witness of a couple that's like, yes, we want to be a gift to one another. Yes, we want to be a gift to our kids, but God put us on the earth to be a gift to the world. So put it simply, is your relationship benefiting anyone else? other than you. If not, then it ain't a whole lot different than what you see everywhere else. And here's why it matters. Here's why it matters. Why it matters is because I don't care who you are. I don't care what type of relationship we are talking about. Every single relationship is grounded on something. It's centered 
in and on something. Maybe for you, uh, it is your kids. Your kids are the center of your orbit. Your entire life revolves around their activities, the things you want to make available to them, all the things you want to do for them. And so your kids are the thing that drive, they found, they ground everything you do. Maybe for you, it's your work. You're driven, you're ambitious, you want to climb, you want to do good things, and so you and your partner have that in common, or you and this friend have this in common, and so all of your conversations, everything you do is about how to move up, and how to accumulate more, and how to do more, and how to be more. Or maybe for you, it's a shared interest or a shared passion. There's a cause that gets your heart beating that you care so much about, and you and this other person, you share this cause. And friends, don't get it twisted. None of those things in and of themselves are inherently bad. And by the way, if that center is working for you, great, great. But if it's not, or if sometime in the near future you wake up one day and you find yourself wondering, well, is there more? something deeper? Is there something different than the life we're currently leading? And if that's you, if that's ever you, what do you got to lose? Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.